Joining us now, you have read his work on sites like Uproxx and Grantland. He uh, has a new book out called Twilight of the Gods, a look back at the history of class- classic rock. He is Stephen Hyden. Uh, and Stephen, I know, I, I believe you mentioned this on your podcast, just the timeline for the process of writing this book and when you began it, but it seemed like there was a stretch in, what, like 2016 and 2017 where it felt like once a quarter or monthly we were just losing some of these rock and roll giants. How much of that played into your uh, decision to go down this path as this subject for your book? Yeah, I mean, it was a big influence on it. You know, as you said, a lot of the book takes place during that period. Like, I was going to a lot of classic rock concerts at that time um, and and basically just trying to see as many people as I could because, like, a lot of people, you know, I feel like if you don't see these legends when they're in your town, uh, you may not get another chance, you know? I, I think that's why you're starting to see so many retirement tours. You know, there's a very sort of savvy marketing in that where uh, it's sort of underlying the urgency uh, of seeing these people. But, I mean, I I had the idea for the book about five, six years ago and um, actually put together a proposal and I couldn't get any takers for it. So I ended up writing another book called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me and that came out in 2016. That's about, like, music rivalries. Um, And then... When David Bowie passed away, I kind of started thinking about this idea again. And then Prince died a couple months later. And as you said, it just seemed like there was a series of these high-profile icons starting to pass away. And it just seemed like, okay, maybe now this is an idea that not only I'm thinking of, but I think a lot of people are thinking about this, and it, it might be the time to write the book. Yeah, and um, I I read your, your favorite band is Killing Me as well, and you talked about the rivalries um, between some of the artists in that book. And one of the interesting parts in in this book that I found was early on when you kind of talked about what makes some acts classic rock and what makes them classic rock and and the differences between uh, like Billy Joel versus uh, Gary Newman and, and, and what went into those differences. It felt like a similar kind of slant, but just explaining the difference in there. So uh, I guess if you can put it into words, classic rock versus classic rock, What what's the biggest difference? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about classic rock, the biggest problem that you have is just trying to figure out what exactly does that mean, you know, because people define it in so many different ways. And it's, it, it's such a nebulous term. It doesn't really mean anything specific. Um, I think when some people use the term, they're talking about the best rock music ever made. You know, they're using it as sort of like a, a value judgment almost. So maybe they would talk about more obscure type of stuff that isn't that popular but is really critically acclaimed or proved to be really influential, like the Velvet Underground, for instance, or the Stooges, you know, bands like that. Um, but what I'm talking about in this book are really the bands that were codified by classic rock radio as being, you know, that era of bands. And classic rock being a format that really started in the early 80s. You know, that's when that idea started to come into play of playing these bands from the past and sort of just playing the same bands forever. And the bands that were predominant on that format and still are today are, you know, bands like Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, 
Fleetwood Mac, the Eagles, of course the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, acts like that, that, um, again, were sort of taken into these playlists on classic rock stations. And, you know, and these stations exist in every town. You know, Milwaukee, of course, has them. Um, and the playlists don't, don't really seem to change. You kind of hear the same songs over and over again. So you have people like me who, you know, I'm 40 years old. I'm a member of Generation X. I started listening to, listening to these bands in the early 90s, you know, when I was in my teens. And I was also listening to the current music of that time. I was into alternative rock and gangster rap and all that stuff. But I also listened to classic rock radio. So even though, like, Led Zeppelin had been broken up for, you know, 10 years by the time I started listening to them, they were sort of frozen in ember, you know? They were sort of, like, still on the radio all the time. You could hear Stairway to Heaven and Whole Lot of Love. And it was almost like they were kind of frozen in time. So there are a lot of people like me and even younger who may not have experienced those bands as they were putting out records, but we really did grow up with them, you know? And that's the perspective of, the perspective that I'm writing from in this book, which I think is unique. Usually when you read books like this, it's written by baby boomers, people that were actually at Woodstock, or, you know, were seeing these bands as they were touring for the first time. But there's so many people, Gen Xers, Millennials, who came to this music through the radio. And that's a very kind of unique perspective, you know, that, that those generations had on this music. It feels like a very, uh, like, Wisconsin-type thing, too. And I know that's where you were raised, but everyone that I know, you have memories of growing up, and as you pointed to, listening to the radio, being in the car with your dad or your uncle or someone, and classic rock was on the radio. That's what your dad had on in the garage and it's something that just seems like it, it resonated with most people and stuck with them to the point where you get to be in your mid-30s and your favorite artist is still Tom Petty. Right, exactly. And it's not just your dad's radio. It's at, you know, baseball games or football yeah. games. Like you go to Lambeau Field and they're still playing Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne. You know, like there's, you know, kids now, kids who are you know probably 12, 11 years old who know that song because of, Packer games, um, or you go to you know the mall, or you go anywhere. Like this music is, it's like in the atmosphere almost. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, there's classic rock stations everywhere, but there is something about the Midwest. I think, you know, like culture is like a little bit slower here. You know, things kind of stay the same, maybe a little bit longer than they do in other parts of the country. And you know, it's not just like the the big time bands, but it's also bands like Ario Speedwagon and Sticks and bands like that that you would see at county fairs. Yeah, like you know? Foreigner and acts like, like that. Exactly, or Journey yeah. or all those bands. And they kind of stay, I think, in front of mind maybe a little bit longer if you live around here than you than you would maybe if you lived on the coast or something. Uh I know that was true for me. It was like Ario Speedwagon was almost like a new, they were almost like a contemporary band, you know, <laughs> they were playing locally, you know, my mom loved that band, so she was playing REO Speedwagon tapes in the house, you know, so I heard that as much as I heard any of like the pop music that was contemporary of the time when I was a kid. It, and, you know, I don't know how related it is, but it was always the, the weirdest thing for me when all of these bands, too, the changes that they went through, and it feels like we see it with bands like that, with REO Speedwagon and Journey, where 
we catch them, and we as in when you're a kid that listens to what your parents have on, you catch them at the tail end and what was now dubbed basically classic rock. And then years later, if you really do a deep dive and go through their history to see like, whoa, Journey was not at all like this when they launched it. And Fleetwood Mac, too, and even acts like Pink Floyd. Right. And with all those bands you mentioned, they also, you know, they all went through dramatic lineup changes and where they lost, you know, the stars of the band in many cases. You know, people that founded the band, people that like were the lead singers who left and then they replaced them. And, uh, you know, with Fleetwood Mac, we're, you know, we just saw Lindsey Buckingham left the band again. He either left voluntarily or he was fired. You know, there's differing stories on that. But they went out and they get Mike Campbell from the Heartbreakers. And, of course, he needs a job now because Tom Petty passed away. And um, while there's a long history of this, these things happening, it's a little different now in that you see these bands who have now become brands. You know, they're like Coca-Cola it's, or Levi's, you know. They, they have a strong sort of economic imperative to keep going, even if they lose a member. Uh, they're not necessarily recharging to put out another great record. They're, they're adding members because they need to stay on the road or they want to stay on the road uh, because there's a big market still that wants to see these bands. I mean, if you know, you know, I love Fleetwood Mac, I love Lucy Buckingham songs, there's still going to be a lot of people that are still going to want to see them, even if they know it's not sort of, the band at full strength yeah. because it's like close enough, you know. And at this point, I think people are maybe more forgiving of that because they know that their opportunities to see these groups are are more limited now. You um you, you talk about the timeline for classic rock and, and really beginning with Sgt. Pepper and ending with the Fragile by Nine Inch Nails. So looking at that timeline. Is Sgt. Pepper the Beatles' most classic rock album? Well, I think when you look at uh, sort of the history of, of rock music, I, in the late 60s, I think Sgt. Pepper was looked at as a landmark record because um, it was kind of the first time that like rock musicians were consciously trying to make like a work of art, you know, something that would be comparable to you know, a symphony or a novel or a great film or a painting or whatever. Whereas, like, early on, rock and roll was like teen music. It was made, you know, for, for young people. It was about school. It was basically, you know, like teeny bopper music. And, you know, there were plenty of people at the time who didn't like that development. They thought that rock died when Sgt. Pepper came out because it was sort of the beginning of pretension and music. And that's when you begin... The narrative of rock is dead, which I write about in the book, about how people talk about rock music being dead. Like that, that happens all the time. Now people talk about that, but that's happened since very early on. You know, people have talked about that. Um, I want to talk about the fragile for a second because that's kind of a, a weird thing or a controversial thing. I'm sure people are going to read the book and wonder, you know, what the heck I'm talking about. Because again, you know, kind of getting back to that idea of trying to define what classic rock is. People have so many different ideas of what it should be and, 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 and what it isn't. You know, what, what, we, what we've seen in recent years is the 90s being absorbed into sort of classic rock radio, where you hear Led Zeppelin, and then, you, and then you'll hear Pearl Jam, and then you'll hear Smashing Pumpkins, and then you'll hear Pink Floyd. 
And there's lots of people who don't really like that. You know, they think it's kind of weird to hear that. But the fact of the matter is, is that classic rock was founded as a radio format, and it was intended to reach a certain audience. And it was older sort of people that were in their 30s and 40s, basically. And now people who are in their 30s and 40s, you know, the music of their youth, or the rock of their youth, is music from the 90s, along with sort of those original classic rock bands. Uh, so that's why I pushed it into the 90s with that, because I think the 90s is kind of the end of that era of, like, really famous, mega-selling rock bands that were sort of at the center of pop culture. You know, there's great bands now, of course, but rock music is more of a subculture now than, like, this mega-selling thing, like, where Pearl Jam sold, like, 10 million copies of their first record, or Nevermind Nirvana sold, like, tens of millions of copies. Um, that doesn't really happen on that kind of level anymore, where where it's like this common touchstone for people necessarily. So that's where I, I, I drew the line. But I know that's going to be a chapter that people read, and they're going to want to throw my book across the room, because they're like, why is Ryan Snails in this classic rock book? But I think I make a good argument in my book. Hopefully, even if you don't agree with me, you'll be entertained. Well, no, I and it it kind of ties into uh, what I want to bring up next. But just going off of what you said there, I mean, it just really and we've all known this, but reading this and, and having it hit you over the head too, it just really sinks in with how much the landscape has changed and everything is pop music now. That you know, my aunts and uncles who knew nothing about music knew who Pearl Jam was or knew who Kurt Cobain was, but now I mean, it's it Taylor Swift, sure and those names, but you'd be hard-pressed, if you're not a music fan, to name a rock band. Right. It's interesting because one thing I talk about in the book is, you know, as hard as it is to, to define what classic rock is, you know, that's, a, that's a, again, that's a nebulous term that's come out. You know, there, there are no bands necessarily that, like, that, that's not really like a real genre. You know, it's sort of something that gets projected onto bands. I think rock in general, like, as a term, has kind of lost its meaning in a way. I think it's hard for people to even pick out a, what, what a rock band is. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement about that. I think like in the 80s and 90s, rock was sort of like an umbrella term for lots of different kinds of artists. So it was almost like a default term. You know, like, well, like with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, there's so many different kinds of artists. They're not all necessarily playing what you would consider rock music, but they're kind of part of that family tree. And that's how rock was, that's how it used to be talked about. But now it's like, I think you could make a case, for instance, that Taylor Swift is a rock star, you know, because she plays guitar in arenas. She writes personal songs about her her own relationships. Um, you know, she's, she's part of that singer-songwriter lineage that goes back to the 60s and 70s. You know, you could draw connections between her and a lot of those singer-songwriters uh, that were happening then. But at the same time, you feel like, well, you know, she doesn't really fit the archetype of a rock person. You know, she doesn't look like a rock person. She doesn't really act like a rock person. But, you know, I've gotten into arguments with people who don't think Radiohead is a rock band because they, you know, they don't rock hard enough. Yeah. You know, or like... Um, you know, LCD sound system or something. You know, they're like, well, they're too dancey. Too I don't electronic, like, you know, yeah. they're, they're too electronic. Or, you know, 
one of the biggest rock bands of the decade that never gets called a rock band, but the band members themselves think of themselves as a rock band, is One Direction. You know, and if you listen to their records, they make a lot of classic rock references in their songs. There's songs that sound like Def Leppard. They have songs that sound like um, sort of power pops from the 70s. You know, the lead singer of that band, Harry Styles, he put out a solo record last year where like half the songs sound like Oasis and half the songs kind of sound like like Southern rock, like Allman Brothers type stuff. Um, but it's filtered through this sort of pop sensibility. And I'm sure like a lot of older classic rock people would say, well, he's just a teen singer. But if you read interviews with him, he listens to rock music and that's all he talks about. So, um, I agree with you. It's like hard to find a rock singer, but at the same time, like rock music, it's so ingrained in yeah. music now that it's almost invisible. You know, it's like it's hard to pick out exactly what it is anymore. Well, and unless this is just because the early to mid '90s is when I really started getting the music, because I'm around the right. same age as you, and unless it's just my slant viewing it because of that. How much of it would you say in, in the 90s it really felt like we started to splinter a lot more, where you always had subgenres, but you get to the 90s and then alternative and grunge and new metal towards the end of the decade and everything else that would have been considered rock is now placed into a different part of rock, but we'll call it this? How much of that impacted it? You know, I think that in the 90s, the difference between then and now is that you had a structure in place that made it easier to promote rock bands. You know, you had MTV, you had a stronger music press, you had really, I think rock radio was a lot stronger then. And it allowed for these bands to become more part of sort of the fabric of culture. You know, like Nirvana was played a ton on MTV. Like I discovered Smells Like Teen Spirit, like a lot of people my age, because I saw the video for that song on MTV. And what we have now is, I, I just don't think, I, I, I think there's a lot of things that conspire against rock bands. You know, I don't think rock bands necessarily stream well on streaming platforms. You know, if you're going to have, say, like a bunch of pop songs on a playlist, to drop like something that is grittier and louder and more abrasive in, in the middle of that, it sort of ruins the playlist. You know, it ruins the flow of it. You know, it doesn't really go as well next to that kind of stuff uh, as maybe something that's mellower and, and sounds like the other pop songs. Um, so I think that's a factor. And I just think that the music industry has shrunk from how it was in the 90s. You know, I, I think it was easier in the 90s and in the, in, in the 80s to have this sort of middle class of artists who were successful, but they weren't necessarily the biggest thing in the world. You know, you could have like a good mid-level career where you, maybe you're selling a million records with it every album. But back then, that wasn't as big of a deal to go platinum. It was sort of like a lot of bands went platinum. Um, whereas now, it seems like so much capital goes into like a small number of artists, you know, because there's just not as much money and resources to go around. So you put it all on Beyonce, or you put it all on Drake, 
or you know all of these sort of this small number of, of, of pop stars. It's kind of like what happened with movies. You know, like every movie now is like a comic book movie. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of like mid-level movies because you kind of have to bet the farm on superstars now, like in every industry. Yeah, that, that's a good point about the movies, and especially it seems like the last two years what we've seen. And uh, when we talk about the timeline and what started classic rock and what you consider the end, and one of the things you explain in picking Nine Inch Nails, part of that was it also coincided with the end of the 90s, in 99 when it was released. How right. much did, once we hit 2000 and Napster started to become a thing, how much did that change classic rock? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I talk about in the book is that, uh, you know, like a big part of sort of the mythology of classic rock is the album. You know, talking about the album being kind of the center of what artists do. You know, like you like you're judged by your discography. You're judged by the records you put out and how each record sort of builds on the previous one. And by the end of the '90s, you know, you have the beginnings of Napster. You know, Napster becomes a phenomenon in 1999. And I remember that very clearly. You know, I remember going on the internet and feeling exhilarated because you could just uh, grab any album you wanted. Now, the problem back then is that it took forever to, to download. Yeah, you had to do it overnight. You do it overnight, but there was something exciting about it. I mean, it was still faster than like going to the record store, you know, or well, like. And when you would go from downloading at your your home through dial-up, and then you go to college and see those, whoa, I can get this in five minutes. Yeah, exactly. And it was it was the beginning of like sort of consumption for the sake of consumption, you know, which is how we all live now. But back then it was like very addictive. You know, I, I remember staying up all night and just downloading all night long just because I could do it. You know, the idea of getting like 50 albums in one night, you know, which would have been inconceivable if I had to pay for all of that, you know, I could do that now. And it was very exciting. But it also, you know, it, it clearly uh, it changed the meaning of what an album is, you know. And obviously, albums still exist. A lot of people still care about them. Artists still want to make them. Um, but you don't need to buy an album anymore. You don't need to listen to music as an album anymore. And it's interesting looking at how streaming has changed what albums are like because now you're starting to see artists who are putting out albums that are basically like playlists, you know, where it's like 20 or 30 songs long and it, it, it's structured more like a, it has the flow of a playlist more than the flow of an album, yeah. you know, which are two different things. And that totally makes sense. I mean, technology has always influenced how music is made. You know, the album, you know, the idea of like putting five songs on each side of a record. You know, that was defined by the limitations of a vinyl record. You know, in, in the 80s and 90s, albums started getting longer. You know, 60, 70, 80-minute albums because CDs made that possible. And now we're going to see streaming affect uh, what albums look like and sound like. And um, I think it's very possible that more artists more and more artists will really be making conventional albums as we know them now. They'll be kind of 
putting out songs as they record them and structuring them into sort of like a playlist type format um, because that's how people listen to music now. Um, so that really kind of began at the end of the 90s, you know, uh, it's been a 20-year process of that. So, but yeah, you're right. That was another reason why I talked about The Fragile because that was a very sort of conventionally structured record. It was co-produced by Bob Ezrin who did The Wall with Pink Floyd and a bunch of Alice Cooper records and Lou Reed records and a big classic rock producer, you know, and they took forever to make it. It took five years for them to make that record, um, which seems inconceivable now. Like artists never go away that long anymore. You know, you can't let people forget you because things move so quickly now that you have to stay a constant presence, whether it's putting out songs, whether it's being on Instagram or Twitter, uh, you know, you got to stay in the front of mind for people uh, these days. Well, and I'm clearly an exception to the rule because you know, once we got deep into the 2000s and it just became singles and when iTunes became more and more prevalent and everybody was just loading up individual songs, I still just wanted complete albums. Like, nah, I don't want just the song. I want to listen to the whole album all the way through. And like one of the things you you can't explain to people now that are just in this generation that it's just playlists and singles driven is listening to an album and and taking that in and finding those songs that you know aren't singles but it resonates with you. Oh, I like that Bugs from Vitalogy and sitting through concerts like oh, I hope they really play this song that you know they'll never play. That's gone now. Well, it is and it isn't, because, you know, I think artists still love making albums, and they still think of their music in terms of albums. Like, I talk to artists all the time who say, you know, I know that my record's going to go on Spotify, and people are going to listen to it the way they listen to it. They may take a song that they like and put it on a playlist, um, but I'm still going to make an album, because that's what I grew up listening to, and I think it's important. And that's not just in rock music. That also happens in pop and rap and every genre. I mean, Beyonce, like her last two records are very sort of album-oriented albums. I mean, she, uh, I mean, she made like a film for yeah. Lemonade. You know, like she turned that into sort of like a concept record about her, uh, you know, relationship issues with Jay Z. Um, but you know, Beyonce is also an artist who's in her like mid to late thirties. You know, like she grew up around the same time and that you and I did. You know, she grew up with albums. I'm curious to see if, like, someone who's 20, you know, like a pop artist who grew up, uh, who was basically born at the turn of the century, are they going to have that same attachment? You know, they may very well have it. I mean, there's a lot of young people that buy vinyl now, you know, and they really get into that. You know, I, I think one of the themes of this book is that there's always going to be young people that aren't into sort of the trendy thing, you know, they're going to look for an alternative to what is maybe the predominant culture. And that's the way I was when I was a kid. And it was one of the things that led me to classic rock, you know, it was like, I'm not into pop music. I, I, this seems different and maybe a little richer to me. And, um, you still see young people who feel that way, you know, that, that, that still go through a Zeppelin phase you know, it seems incredible that there are kids in, two, in the 2010s that, that do that, but there are, 
incredibly. Um, so, you know, somehow, no matter what happens, maybe in pop music or the mainstream, there's always going to be people, young people, that are into this sort of uh, older kind of music that is uh, that maybe feels more eternal to them or, or more mythic to them. When when we talk about the the timeline here too for when classic rock really lived, uh, I know last year one of the big books that came out, Lizzie Goodman's "Meet Me in the Bathroom," about the the scene going on on the East Coast in New York. Those groups like the White Stripes and the Strokes and those acts that we saw, the National, is that really like the first generation where it ended? It kind of seems that way. I mean, the thing with the Strokes is that they were never that popular. You know, I mean, they, they were popular, but, like, they weren't as popular even as the rap rock bands that they supposedly got rid of, you know. But, like, when we talk about the early 2000s, there's that story that, like, all those garage rock bands from New York swept in and they got rid of Limp Bizkit and Corn and all those bands, but... You know, Limp Bizkit Bizkit was still pretty big in the early 2000s. And I would say even now, you know, more people probably like Limp Bizkit than The Strokes, you know, which makes sense. I mean, they were on MTV. They were like a huge band. Um, I mean, The White Stripes ended up being a pretty big band. Um, But again, yeah, it feels a little bit different. And I think just because it's not the fault of the bands, I think it's just, you know, that was the beginning of... Things just being, it, it, it was just being really hard to have that kind of impact if you weren't a huge star. You know, I, I, again, I think the contraction of the music industry, I think it really hurt rock bands because and I think it hurt bands in general. You know, one thing, if you look at music across the board, there's just fewer bands now. It's more solo artists now. Yeah. You know, whether it's in rap, pop, country, rock, you know, I, it's easier. It's easier to, to promote Beyonce than Destiny's Child. It's easier to promote Justin Timberlake than InSync. You know, it's easier to sort of manage one person than it is this sort of like five-headed headed beast. You know, that where people fight and there's you know potential for uh, you know drug overdoses and, and career differences and all that. I mean. You know, like, would you rather deal with, like, George Michael or would you rather deal with Guns N' Roses? You know, <laughs> obviously you'd rather deal with one person uh, than, than a band. Um, so, uh, again, I think that contraction of the music industry, it just made it more difficult to get the kind of exposure that you need to really have that kind of wide superstar impact uh, that I think was easier maybe to do, like, in the 20th century. So I, I know you picked out that timeline for here's where it's peak classic rock. Is it, I guess, accurate or fair to say if we go then, I don't know, maybe five or six years after that Nine Inch Nails, the Fragile album, and you get past the 2002 through three four when garage rock was really, here's the revival and this is going to start to take over. Once we got past that, does it feel like that's when something new started and that's when we started to move towards the model we're in now? Yeah, I mean, I, I just remember, like, with the Strokes and Interpol and all those bands, 
I just remember assuming that it would be like the 90s again, yeah. that they would be the next sort of Nirvana and Pearl. Like they would do what those bands did yeah. and be as prominent. And it just didn't happen. And I just feel like culture has changed now. I think we live in a world where like, it's not like how it was like when Nirvana came out and MTV kind of changed seemingly overnight where you weren't going to see poison videos anymore because now it was all going to be alternative rock. Now it's a situation where if you love poison and hair metal, you can just go to your little niche. You can go to your serious radio station of choice, or you can go to YouTube or you can go, you know, follow people on Twitter. You can, you know, you can, you can tailor your Twitter feed to reflect your own interests. So in a way it's like, you don't have to worry about the outside world sort of taking the music you love or, or changing your, your taste. Because um, just the distribution channels have changed. So I, th- I think it's really hard for anything from the underground to take over the world in that same way. Um, just because of how we kind of consume media now, which is kind of weird, but maybe it's good because it allows for so many things to have an audience. You know, it, it doesn't maybe have the same sort of cultural impact anymore, but it also allows a lot of different kinds of art to exist and to, have, and to find an audience. So, you know, I, I think ultimately that's a good thing. And I think with rock music, you know, the thing about arena rock is that I, I romanticize the idea of it you know, the bigness of it and the sort of community of it. But, like, actually seeing bands in an arena is not very fun. Music sounds terrible in in an arena. You know, got parking problems. You know, you got, you know, the beer is more expensive. You know, it's not a great experience. Like, I'd rather go see a band in a theater or in a club. You know, like, that is a better experience. Um, So, in that respect, it's I kind of like it when my favorite band doesn't get too popular, when they're just popular enough to play a theater, because it's actually a better experience to see them. Uh, It's like, well, I wish Bruce Springsteen played theater. Like, this would be awesome. I could see him in a theater. I wouldn't have to go see him in a huge stadium. Um, So, I don't know. I mean, I think there's there's positives and negatives about all that stuff, but the the important thing is that the music still exists, and it's there if you want to go find it. Yeah, when you see uh, like the acts like Pearl Jam, Bruce Springsteen, uh, even Bon Jovi was just here for the final show at the Bradley Center. When you see they're playing in arena in the Bradley Center, you get it with the magnitude of the crowd. But when it's your favorite acts and relatively newer acts that are playing there, there's always the, uh, why does this have to be at the Bradley? Why couldn't this be at the Paps, or why couldn't this be at the Riverside? Right, exactly. I mean, if you have the choice between seeing a band you love at, like, the Paps Theater, which is, like, this gorgeous theater, mm-hmm. and, I mean, the Bradley Center, I mean, there's a fine arena. It's nothing against that specifically. Or, or what, what, is it Demo Harris Center now? Or yeah. What's yep. the arena there? Well, for okay. now, for another, what, month before it becomes the new arena. So, I mean, yeah, it's nothing against that specific arena. It's just arenas in general can be kind of a, a tough... It's just cavernous. And it's although, not, yeah. although I did see Roger Waters okay, yeah. last summer, and that was an amazing show. I mean, that's a, that's a guy where you kind of want to see him in an arena because his production is so amazing. 
that he kind of like will uh, elevate his show to suit the room. You know, just the spectacle of it is so amazing. Um, but you know, most people don't have the budget or the ambition to do that. It's normally just a band standing on stage playing, and which isn't always the most exciting thing to see. Um, but there are there are artists who do sort of elevate the, their show and make it, you know, this sort of spectacular thing in an arena. But yeah, generally, you know, like I've seen Bruce Springsteen play at Wrigley Field, yeah, and it was great. But um, I saw Springsteen on Broadway. Okay. Um, where he's playing like a 900-person theater, and that's like one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Like he's playing, you know, some of those songs he's singing off mic, and just to hear Bruce Springsteen's voice when he's not shouting over a band, and he's just sort of singing to you as if you were in his living room. You know, like I was getting choked up just from that, you know, because it was so intimate. And you're, you just never imagined that you would ever be, have that kind of proximity to, to Springsteen, ever, you know? It's extremely powerful. So, you know, I think he's probably the best arena rock performer I've ever seen, but seeing him in a theater, it was, like, way better. You know, there was no contest. Yeah, and, you know, just seeing anyone in an intimate setting like that, you know, I... I, shows at Turner Hall, for example, where you're only getting a couple hundred people in there, kind of what you described in the Springsteen Broadway shows, but to see acts there where you're 10 feet away from them and you can see everything that went into this song. And I saw Brian Fallon there at Turner Hall a couple of weeks ago, and just to be that close and hear them singing off mic and see everything that goes into it, the arena shows are great, but when you can take in the stuff like that too, I mean, that feels more meaningful. Um, I saw the Gaslight Anthem at Turner Hall yeah. probably, I want to say, eight or nine years yeah, ago. Yeah, we were probably at, we were at the same show. Okay. That is a lot of shows I've ever been to. Yeah. That was amazing. But I remember being at the merch table, uh, you know, in the back of the room, and I could not hear myself talk to the, the woman like I was buying something. Like uh, it, it was like I was standing right next to the amp, like in the back of the theater. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, it was a great, I mean, and I'm not complaining. I, 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 I love that show, but, uh, I, I always remember that it's like the loudest show yeah. I've ever been to. You, uh, you talk about the ultimate classic rock band and to the chagrin, I'm sure of a lot of people, and it's the running punchline because of things like the big Lebowski, but the Eagles, what makes the Eagles the ultimate classic rock band? Well, and again, I'm not saying this as sort of like they're my favorite band, you know. I, Just I check all the boxes. Yeah, they're a band that I think if you had, if an alien landed in your backyard and this alien somehow, you know, all the things that the alien could know about the human race, that the alien wanted to know about classic rock, and you could only play that alien one band, I think you would play them Hotel California. You know, to me, that is such... That is the sound that that's the song that immediately comes to mind if someone tells talks about classic rock radio, you know, uh, not only because that song's been played forever, it just seems to have a lot of the qualities of, of the music of that time. It, it seems very emblematic of that. And I think also just that band, uh, the arc of their career, is very sort of uh, 
it's very representative of like what classic rock went through, you know, that evolution from being this sort of idealistic hippie music of the late sixties, you know, mellow country rock, folky type stuff to what they became, which was this sort of stadium rock, very slick, you know, corporate, very rich, wealthy type music. And then in the nineties, you know, they get back together and they do a reunion tour and they play the same songs in the same way every night. And it's extremely lucrative and they do that for 20 years. I guess they put out one record in that time, but for the most part, they were just sort of sailing on their hits for a really long time. And all those things, you know, everything that happened to the Eagles in sort of the micro sense that happened to classic rock in the macro sense. So, and they also have an amazing documentary, History of Eagles. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Oh, yeah. Even if you don't like, if you don't like the Eagles, it's funny because I, I have sort of a love-hate relationship with the Eagles. Like, I, in some ways, I can't stand them. Uh, you know, like, Don Henley, I think, is kind of like a smug, well, not very nice person. And when you but, hear his interviews, too, like the interview he did on Howard Stern a couple of years ago where it's, oh, this guy takes himself super seriously. He's very stern. He's very quick to sue people if they, like, <laughs> sample his music. Like, he sued Frank Ocean. You know, he seems like a kind of a sour person. Um, but I also think he's like a good songwriter. He's like written some really good songs. I think he's like a pretty good lyricist, actually. And, um, you know, their songs are so well constructed that even if you have issues with them uh, personally, you know, if they seem sort of smug or, or, or jerky a little bit, it's hard to deny that like Take It Easy isn't a, isn't a good song. You know, like that. There's a reason why those songs get played a million times, like every day. Um, so I have a love, I have a sort of a love hate relationship with the Eagles, and of course, yeah, there's the big Lebowski thing. Like Jeff Lebowski is one of the most famous rock critics of the last 20 years, I think. <laughs> you know, his, his which we, of course we can't repeat what he says about the Eagles in the big Lebowski, but you know, I think he speaks for a lot of people in regard to that band. He's probably turned a lot of people away from that band. Uh, but yeah, I think that they are, you got to give them their due as sort of the figureheads of, of classic rock, I think. And that's another one too, where we, we talked about like the Midwest upbringing earlier, but and that's another one where chances are your one of your parents owned the Eagles greatest hits album or hotel California. And you heard quite a bit of the Eagles coming up. So Kind of what you were describing, where I'm sure a lot of people have a love-hate with him, where I don't really like the Eagles, but I know a handful of songs. Right, and it becomes one of those things, I don't know if it's Stockholm Syndrome or <laughs> what you would call it, but these things become so ingrained in your own history that even if you like, you grew up hating the Eagles because your dad played it all the time, you get older and you, you, you change your mind a little bit because it is a part of your past. And it's evocative of certain times of your life. So whether you like it or not, it ends up kind of being a part of you, and you can't help but have perfection for it. I mean, I feel that way about a lot of, I guess, I call them the underbelly bands of classic rock radio, like the Diario Speedwagons, the Sticks, uh, you know, Boston. The bands that seem sort of faceless, you know, uh, they don't have the sort of personality of, like, the big bands like the Beatles and the Stones and all that. They're um, they're the bands that. But I, oh, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I was going to say those bands are basically the bands that most of us can say 
it was probably the first concert you saw at a local county fair. Right, exactly. Exactly. And also the bands where like you didn't really know like they sang those songs until someone like pointed it out to you, like, Oh, I didn't know you just thought like, Oh, this is the these are the songs in between like Born to Run and Won't Get Fooled Again. It's like I know Bruce and I know the Who and then there's like this other song called Renegade. Like who sings Renegade? I've never heard of this band. And then you find out, oh Sticks does Renegade and you're like, Oh, I kinda like Renegade. That's a really good song. I didn't know I like Renegade. But they also do you know, Babe, Babe, I Love You. That song is like this drippy power ballad. That's awful. Uh, but then maybe you start loving that song because it reminds you of your mom. Your mom loves Babe. So you soften on that song. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of that in the book, talking about how, again, this, this stuff, I think just from repetition, it ends up ingrained in your own history and in, in your life. And you, some of it you love and some of it you maybe don't love, but then you end up loving it because it's just a part of your life. Well, and I, I feel like we, or, or I, I guess I should say I, have really dwelled on a lot of the negatives that once we saw the change in, in things like Napster and, and file sharing services coming in to how much it changed music. But I know in the case of me, and I have to believe it's the same for a lot of people, if there is one positive to point to, I mean, it, you expand your collection for what ten bucks a month to just subscribe to these services. And thinking of me when I was a kid and all these albums that I would gradually get to, I couldn't afford to buy fifteen new records and just go through and listen to them. But now you have everything at your fingertips, and you can go back. Like, oh, I forgot this was the second album they put out, and it feels like there's more of an opportunity for that now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's tempting to romanticize your own past, you know, and I know for me, when I was a kid, I would, you know, ride my bike to the record store and it would take, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes to get there. And I was going through like heavy traffic and it felt like this epic journey to get there. And then, you know, I got to go to the store and kind of pick one, maybe two albums, you know, CDs or tapes that I was going to choose, and that was going to be my music for like the next week or two. And I think back on that, and I think, wow, that was such a fun thing to do. That was like, it was like an adventure, you know? And I romanticized it. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you had told me that I could go to this box in my house and punch in any record I've ever heard of and hear it instantly, I would have thrown my bike in the garbage and never gone to a record store again. Like, that would have been the greatest thing in the world to me. And it is a great thing. You know, one of the sad things about technology is that we get so used to these things so quickly, you know, we lose sight of how miraculous it is that you have, like, a billion songs at your at your fingertips. You know, it's not every song ever made, but it's, like, a lot of the songs ever made. And certainly you know, almost every sort of well-known, famous, iconic record you can hear on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. Um, and it has made it, I think, possible, or it's made it easier for younger generations to discover a lot of this older music, even though, you know, you hear older mu- musicians complain about how they're not getting as much money yeah. anymore because streaming doesn't pay as well. But, you know, I think of a band like Greta Van Fleet, 
who's become this sort of buzzy rock band in the last couple of years who sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. Zeppelin yeah. You know, and they're all like 18, 19, 20 years old. And uh, I'm sure for them it was like, if you want to become a Led Zeppelin fan, all you need is like Wikipedia and Spotify, and you can become an expert in like a day or two. Just... <laughs> it's all there. You don't have to like spend years <laughs> buying albums and reading books. All anything you need to know about any great band, you can find out very quickly. And uh, in some ways, it makes music you kind of burn through things. I think faster now. But um, if you're looking to just sort of sample everything, it is like a wonderful development it, for sure for music fans. You talk about the growth too. I mean, just think about where we went over the course of. I don't know, 15 years, really, even less than that, 10 years probably, where you go through finally getting a CD player in your car and and just having a book of CDs or one of those visor holders to five years later you have an iPod, but it holds maybe 200 songs to the point we're at now where on your phone anything you want is out there. And what's amazing to me is that like downloads, I feel like, I mean, downloads still exist. I guess, it, I guess people still download music, but that seems like something that's already disappearing. You know, like vinyl uh, has had a comeback, CDs have hung around, but like downloads to me, that's sort of like a transitional thing where it's like, why download anything now if you can stream it? Yeah. You know, it, it just seems like an inconvenience now. Like I understand, like I like physical media, so I still buy records. Like vinyl or CDs? Content. I do both. Yeah. I, you know, the thing with vinyl now is that vinyl is so expensive. Yeah. So, like, to spend thirty dollars on an album, like, unless I really love it, it's hard for me to justify it. Also, like, I've moved a bunch in the last five years, and there's nothing like moving to just to make destroy you yeah. every yeah. vinyl record you've ever bought because <laughs> it just it just destroys your back. Well, books and, and vinyl; those back. are the two things when you're moving. Like, oh, yeah, I have so many of these. I mean, I bought a house a couple years ago, so I don't think I'm going to be moving for a while. So I, I've been buying records again. But I the last time I moved, I was like, why do I have all these albums? <laughs> I'm killing myself here, man. Well, uh, Steven, I've, I appreciate the time. I've had a lot of fun. I could talk to you forever. The book is called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. And as we said, it's also got your favorite band is Killing Me out there. You can see his work on Up Rocks and the Celebration Rock podcast as well, which uh, is that weekly that you drop a new episode, right? Yeah, every Monday, talk with musicians, writers, all kinds of people about what's happening in rock music, past, present, and future. And I I really enjoyed the uh, 20th Century century Boss and the Vitalogyology series that you did on those uh, as well. So I definitely recommend the podcast to any music fan and certainly the books as well. Um, before we let you go, too, I, I don't know how much you can say or if there is any information, but one of my, fa- if not my favorite act, is The Black Crows. And I saw you're working with Steve Gorman and, and putting out your next work will be on that band. Yes, yeah. Um, it's Steve's book. He's writing a book about the band. It's sort of like a first-person memoir, but he's just writing about the band. And I'm helping him write it, but it's like 
written in his voice from his perspective. And he's a great storyteller. He has a great perspective on the band. Of course, Steve is a co-founder of the Black Crows with Chris and Rich Robinson. So he, he was there from the beginning until the bitter end. And, um, you know, it's fun because I feel like in Twilight of the Gods, I write about all these great rock books um, that I loved as a kid and I still love now. Hammer of the Gods, No One Here Gets Out Alive, many other books. And it's been cool working on this because I feel like this is going to be hopefully in that same canon of books. Like if you're into books about, you know, rock bands doing bad things, testing all the sort of cliche rock things that happen to a band, and the Black Crows, I mean, they had more than their share of controversies and fights and uh, bad things happen. Um, I think you're going to like this book. It's really funny. It's sad. It's just a great story. And it hasn't really been told uh, anywhere like this. So, um, yeah, we're like two-thirds into it now. And uh, I think it's going to be coming out next year. Like, it's due at the end of the year. I think they want to get it out in 19, like before the 30th anniversary of the first record. So. Yeah, I'm excited about that book. I think people are going to really enjoy it. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for that one. I can't wait to read it. And any fans who, I'm sure they've all heard it by now, but any fans of the Black Crows and talk about the story that hasn't been told yet, I mean, you scratch the surface with the podcast you did with Steve Gorman, what, about a year ago this time, and, and just walking through what happened and how the band dissolved. So I can't wait to continue on that and, and check out the book. Yeah. I think you're going to dig it, man. <laughs> I was working on it today a little bit, and man, there, there's just like there's like great anecdotes on every single page. It's just it's it's going to be a great read. Oh well, I I can't wait to read it. And again, I, I loved this book as well. I appreciate the time, and I encourage everyone to check it out and check out the podcast. He is Stephen Hyden. Thanks for taking some time with us today, Stephen. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it.